Welcome back, everybody, to our second episode of Kidney Corner. And again, I'm welcoming my favorite, all-time favorite, uh, critical care pharmacist and uh, dear friend, Ceresa Ward. Welcome to the show again, C. Hi, thank you, V, for having me. It's a pleasure. In our last episode of Kidney Corner, we started to tackle the pharmacological aspects of AKI, acute kidney injury, which we will continue today. We introduced Mr. Miles, our 54-year-old African-American male patient, who presented to the emergency department with complaints of fevers, chills, and abdominal pain. He was subsequently initiated on empiric antibiotics with piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin, along with uh, vasopressor, norepinephrine, for septic shock. He was then transferred to our ICU for further management. In the ICU, we diagnosed him with stage 2 AKI. Do you remember? Yes. As we previously talked about, the development of AKI can correlate with increased risk for mortality in our patient population. Unfortunately, as healthcare providers, we're kind of in this little bit of a conundrum because we either can potentially cause the AKI or we can worsen a, a pre-existing AKI when we're trying to effectively manage the patient's acute condition. From a pharmacotherapy perspective, I think it's definitely helpful to remember or to at least understand that drug-induced nephrotoxicity has been reported to occur at up to 26% of hospitalized patients. Therefore, we not only need to consider the nephrotoxic agents in and of themselves, but we also need to think about patient-specific risk factors as well as think about mitigation strategies moving forward. I know we talked about it before, but could you remind me and our listeners of which drugs are nephrotoxic? Absolutely. The first thing I want to remind you is that this list is pretty extensive. So what we want to do is think about it more so in drug classes as opposed to just the individual drugs. Now, when we think about this list of nephrotoxic agents, think about anti antimicrobials with the exception of macrolides and clindamycin. Uh, think about your chemotherapy agents, immunosuppressants, cardiovascular agents such as ACE inhibitors, also known as angiotensin-converting enzyme um, inhibitors, as well as our angiotensin receptor blockers or ARBs. Uh, statins, diuretics can also cause AKI, as well as miscellaneous agents such as NSAIDs, radio contrast, and even normal saline. Is the mechanism of nephrotoxicity for all of these medications uh, identical? Well, Vanessa, the drug-induced nephrotoxicity can occur secondary to a variety of mechanisms. Um, and just to kind of summarize them, because otherwise we'd be talking about them for the next hour, this can include inflammation stemming from an allergic reaction, crystal formation from insoluble drug precipitants, osmotic nephrosis, direct tubular cell toxicity, vasoconstriction, and thrombotic microangiography. Now, despite the innate nephrotoxic risk of these offending agents, you still have to look at or think about the fact that it all falls down to exposure to the nephrons. And so when you are managing a patient who is on multiple nephrotoxic agents, you always want to think to yourself that more is maybe not always better, but maybe a minimalist approach may be better for these patients. And what I mean by the minimalist approach is the least amount of nephrotoxic agents at the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration of treatment time will ultimately help to minimize your patient's risk of developing an AKI. 
see, you also mentioned patient-specific risk factors for AKI or, or considerations. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, there are some discrepancies, but I will say the widely accepted patient-specific risk factors will include patients who are greater than 60 years of age, patients with baseline renal insufficiency, as well as the presence of intravascular volume depletion. And let me break this down for you. With intravascular volume depletion, it can either be absolute from increased volume output, or it could be more of a uh, non-absolute, for lack of a better phrase, when there's lack of effective intravascular volume. So for instance, patients who have sepsis or patients who have, um, such as Mr. Miles, or even patients who have heart failure. So Mr. Miles actually had some risk factors for acute kidney injury. Let's talk a bit more about those. Well, yes, let's look back at Mr. Miles. He had a history of type 2 diabetes. And the American Diabetes Association has told us that 30 to 40% of these patients have been known to develop chronic or what they label as diabetic kidney disease. Based on the information we have available, Mr. Miles had normal kidney function, given the fact that his serum creatinine was 0.9 milligrams per deciliter three months prior to his admission. However, on presentation to the ED, Mr. Miles was hypotensive and presumably septic. Later on, during that admission, his serum creatinine then started to increase to 2.25. So it's likely that he presented with AKI secondary to volume, intravascular volume depletion. Talking about volume depletion now, what is the best fluid for resuscitation? I know there have been a bunch of studies out in, in the recent years, and there has been a lot of discussion um, about that. Do you have any more information for us? Yes. Generally, in efforts to mitigate uh, any types of absolute intravascular volume depletion, we've always used normal saline. However, However, over the years, there's data that has come out from studies such as the SPLIT study, the SALT study, as well as the SMART-ED study and SMART-MED study that have found that patients who receive normal saline are actually at increased risk of developing um, acute kidney, kidney injury, as well as increased risk for needing renal replacement therapy during that hospitalization. The reason for that is they have found that because of the amount of of chloride content in a liter of normal saline, patients will develop hyperchloremia, which can then increase not only their risk of developing metabolic acidosis, but that hyperchloremia has also been um, associated with renal arterial vasoconstriction. Hence, patients will end up having a decrease in renal perfusion and their they subsequently develop an AKI. So instead of using normal saline in patients who are at risk for AKI or maybe already have baseline AKI, you may want to look at what we call balanced crystalloids, such as lactated ringers or some, new, some newer agents which have been um, marketed under trade names such as plasmolite or normosol. These agents have less or have a lower uh, chloride content per liter compared to normal saline, and therefore have been found to be less likely to cause a patient to develop that hyperchloremia and, and or the hyperchloremia-associated renal uh, insufficiency. The other thing we want to talk about is semi-synthetic colloids. And one good example of that is hydroxyethyl starch. There was a study that when they looked in the SMART studies, they found that patients who received semi-synthetic colloids were actually at increased increased risk for having uh, or developing AKI as well as having an increased need for renal replacement therapy. So we 
really want to avoid that. And most uh, guidelines, such as your your um, sepsis campaign guidelines, will recommend against the use of your semi-synthetic colloids for volume resuscitation in this population. Excellent. Thank you for that. A lot of uh, similar sounding uh, similar sounding studies, and um, we will we will list them at the end of this podcast as well. Back to Mr. Miles now. If I recall correctly, we fluid resuscitated him, but he had an inadequate response. His blood pressure did not respond adequately. And then we started him on norepinephrine. There has been in the past some talk about low-dose dopamine um, as well as hemodynamic optimization in general to uh, avoid acute kidney injury. Is there still a role for either low-dose dopamine or the hemodynamic optimization? Okay, well, yes and no. The data evaluating the use of low-dose dopamine for AKI is limited and has failed to consistently demonstrate a benefit. Therefore, this practice is not recommended at this time. However, Cadigo recommends keeping MAPS at around 65 to 90 millimeters per mercury, depending on the patient's age, chronic, whether or not they have a history of hypertension and other comorbidities. Now, along these lines, the optimization of perfusion pressure is recommended by Cadigo. So the kidney care bundle in the PREV-AKI trial included hemodynamic optimization with dobutamine and, I'm sorry, or epinephrine, which led to a decrease in AKI and prevented AKI upstaging. That being said, hemodynamic optimization should target the patients close to normal values and not target supernormal values. As for Mr. Miles, um, he was actually started on norepinephrine and then later uh, had vasopressin added on. Right now, there's no data that suggests that using one vasopressive agent over the other is beneficial. So really what we did for this patient was appropriate. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, hemodynamic optimization is one of my favorite topics. And um, in, in one of our future kidney corners, we will address hemodynamic optimization and abdominal perfusion pressure. So um, everybody um, uh, wait for that and watch out for that. So we have, um, we actually have an elephant in the room um, that are the, um, or that is the antibiotics. For Mr. Miles, did we should we have done something different, or did we was was our treatment our initial empiric treatment optimal for for this patient? Yes, I was waiting for that question, and I knew it was coming. So let's go back with Mr. Miles. Based on his presentation, we, he had fevers, he had chills, he had an elevated white count, and he was hypotensive. So it was clear he had some type of underlying infection. With sepsis, initiation of broad-spectrum antibiotics must be immediate while we continue the initial workup and assessment. Now, while antimicrobial agents such as clindamycin and macrolides are not or have not been associated with AKI, they are also not considered first-line agents for the management of sepsis. So our best option really was to select the least offensive antimicrobial combination, dose it appropriately based on the patient's renal function, and be willing to de-escalate based on updated findings. So let's start with antimicrobial combinations. There's a growing evidence that the combination of vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam, also known as zosin, increases the risk of 
AKI as compared to vancomycin used in combination with other beta-lactams such as um, cefepine or uh, carbapenem such as miropenem. So in the absence of drug shortages, the combination of vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam may be best reserved for use only when clinically indicated based on susceptibilities and should still only be used for the minimum duration necessary. While patients are on this combination of vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam, you want to still maintain heightened awareness of the potential for early AKI and, and be willing to stop the medication um, as soon as possible. In any case, we are still left with the daunting task of determining which agent is most appropriate to, to use empirically with vancomycin. And for that, I really have no clear answer. What I can say is for empiric coverage of the severe infections, we cannot avoid the combination of nephrotoxic antimicrobial therapy at this time and not starting an antimicrobial therapy to manage patient sepsis, that's not an option. Now, when we decide to initiate antimicrobial therapy, it's important that both the dose and dosing interval are appropriate for the patient's current renal function. While there are numerous methods for estimating glomerular filtration rate, um, recommended dosage adjustments for patients with renal dysfunction are based on Cockcroft and Gault equation. This equation was developed in 1976, and it utilizes the patient's age, their body weight, gender, and serum creatinine um, to calculate the estimated creatinine clearance. Now, granted, there are pitfalls to this equation. However, it is widely utilized in clinical practice to gauge current state of renal function and to identify a safer approach to dose adjustments for, for medications that are renally cleared. Given Mr. Miles' weight, piperacillin tazobactam at 4.5 grams intravenously every eight hours was an appropriate starting dose when his serum creatinine was 1.72 milligrams per deciliter. However, as his serum creatinine increased and then was 2.25 milligrams per deciliter, it was appropriate to therefore extend the dosing interval to every 12 hours to allow more time for drug clearance prior to the next dose being administered. This all sounds a little bit complicated, and thankfully, I always had you as my pharmacist, so um, I could count on, on your calculations and the correct dosing for our patients. But do you have any tips or tricks up your sleeve to make this calculation easier when there is no excellent pharmacist around or no pharmacist at all? Well, thank you again, V. Uh, the good news is that there are many references to assist you with both calculating your creatinine clearance as well as dosing, uh, doing dose adjustments with patients who have renal dysfunction. So let's start with calculating your creatinine clearance. Uh, I would recommend MedCalc med uh, Medical Calculator. It's free and you can download the, uh, the app on your smart device. Uh, for information on how to really dose medications, I would recommend either Lexicom or Micromedics. There you will find recommendations on how to dose the medication given the patient's estimated creatinine clearance, as well as how to dose, do dose adjustments for patients who require renal replacement therapy. Excellent. And I, I have to admit, I actually have the MedCalc uh, calculator on my, on my smartphone as well. Um, going back to Mr. Miles and uh, his antibiotics, do we do the same for vancomycin? Uh, we usually order vancomycin troughs. So is that, is that different? Unfortunately, uh, dosing of vancomycin 
And then even medications such as aminoglycosides are not as not quite as easy. While the initial dose of these med uh, medications is based on the patient's uh, body weight and their initial uh, serum creatinine or renal function, uh, patient-specific factors will come into play in terms of how the kidneys will be able to adequately clear the drugs. For whatever reason, and we don't quite understand it, but for some patients, they're not able to clear these drugs as well as others. Um, and therefore, what can happen is drug accumulation. That becomes important because remember I talked about exposure to the nephrons. So with uh, accumulation of medications such as vancomycin or even aminoglycosides, your patients will have increased risk of developing an AKI. Therefore, what we will do to minimize this risk is we will order the drug levels that you talked about. And based on those drug levels, we can then determine if the dosing interval, uh, dose or dosing and or dosing interval are appropriate. Again, if you're not sure of how to do this, I would definitely say ask the pharmacist in your facility for assistance. Hey, nice pluck for pharmacy there. Got to do it. <laughs> yes, and as a pharmacist, there is a time when less is more, even with medications. So getting back to Mr. Miles, at the conclusion of Kidney Corner Part 1, the CT abdomen was positive for intra-abdominal abscess. Interventional radiology was notified, and Mr. Miles was on the schedule for placement of a percutaneous drug, I mean, percutaneous drain. Therefore, we were um, establishing source control. However, this was also the time to look at de-escalating the antimicrobial therapy and discontinuing vancomycin, as it was not indicated for this, um, for this type of infection. After source control, Mr. Miles recovered from septic shock and was eventually discharged home in good spirits. This concludes our Kidney Corner Part 2, and thank you so much to Ceresa. Um, it has been fantastic having you on the show and having, um, having your experience and expertise teach us about pharmacotherapy and how it relates to AKI. Thank you for being here. And thank you again for having me. We've enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody else, for tuning in. And we hope you find Kidney Corner educational and fun. See you next time.